Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagram Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A look at the week on world markets as questions grow whether the U.S. Congress can boost Pentagon spending through a Ukraine supplemental. As Ukraine launches its long-awaited counteroffensive, Washington clears another $2.1 billion in aid for Kiev, including more Patriot and Hawk air defense missiles. The International Air Transport Association's new passenger traffic figures and candid discussion of the world's sustainable aviation plans, as well as worries about the large nature of orders being placed by air carriers around the world, as well as Airbus delivery figures, and emerging themes as the world prepares to convene for the first time in four years at the historic airfield at Le Bourget outside the French capital for the Paris Air Show. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute uh, pleasure, especially since we're also geographically distributed. Special shout out to you, uh, Sash, for joining us from Geneva. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. Always a pleasure, Vago, even, even in a hurry like this. Cheers. Great to be on, Vago, and happy run-up to Paris Week. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, uh, Ron, uh, start us off somewhat more of a normal uh, week. It's it's dawning on some folks in Washington that getting a supplemental, defense supplemental through is going to be more difficult than we expected. By the way, there is some other, you know, just every, every time we sort of seem to overcome um, you know, one economic uh, hurdle, there seems to be another economic hurdle, now concerns uh, about uh, real estate uh, uh, payment uh, delinquencies uh, being up, and even the likes of Elon Musk apparently are contributing to Goldman Sachs uh, headaches, uh, given that Twitter isn't paying their uh, uh, leasing uh, and real estate uh, bills. Walk us through the week and how the group performed against the broader market. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, the broader market, uh, looking at the S&P, was up uh, about half a percent, just just below that, forty basis points. Uh, and you would think, you know, the the air show trade, quote unquote, would be in full form, um, but it but it really wasn't. I mean, A and D both did quite well, and in fact, arguably, defense did a little bit better. Um, if you look at some of the large cap names, uh, you know, Boeing was up um, just under two percent, Transdime up a percent, Helmet a little, little under two percent. Raytheon Technologies up three and uh, three and a third percent. Embraer is up about two percent. But then when you look at some of the defense names, you know Northrop was up two and a half percent. Lockheed up two percent. L3 Harris up three and a half percent. General Dynamics up a percent and a half. So you know both sides of the group actually performed pretty well. When you look at you know maybe the best performer of the week, that was uh, Spirit Aerosystems. Spirit was up uh, a little over nine percent, and that was on news that an, an activist an activist investor. Um, uh, maybe building a position in the shares and, and what that could mean in terms of uh, changes at the company and, and so on and so forth. Now, the 10-year yield has been pretty much relatively flat around just under 4%, 3.75. Uh, oil, WTI, around 70. It's been there for a while now. Brent, 75. Uh, and the VIX has been trending down. Uh, now, you know, the VIX is only uh, about 13 and a half. And um, you know, just to remind everybody, the VIX is sort of that fear index. Um, when times get really funky, you know, it'll shoot up to you know 30, 35. So this is relatively low on the VIX. So you know, the market's pretty much calmed. 
Now, I think the, the biggest debate now in the market is, you know, the Fed will pause. I think that's what everybody thinks will happen. But then do they raise again after pausing? So so we'll see. We'll see where that all goes. But, um, you know, it was a, a relatively uh, quiet market in the week. But, you know, one investor said this to me, and I think it's just pretty interesting. You know, sort of this week, you know, everybody, you know, the recession that everybody was worried about last week, it's it's over. And this is probably the 35th time that's happened uh, maybe right. in the last year. So people trying to time a recession or not um, has made more volatility in the market. And I think investing, at least on, on a shorter term view, uh, far more difficult. We got over the default, right? So from an investor's standpoint, well, thank God that didn't happen. And then there was a little bit of talk of, hey, you know, defense spending will go up. I mean, are, what, are, what are you hearing from investors about the possibility that actually, you know, and, and the House Speaker at the time that we uh, record this has a revolt uh, on uh, his hands. If there is no supplemental, does that change anybody's calculus or is, is how the share is trading sort of suggesting that the market actually is pretty comfortable with where things are? And if there's more money, great. And if there's not more money, that's okay too. I would say this, you know, the, the market never really thought the U.S. would default, right? I mean, at its worst, the probability of a default was about a percent, maybe a smidge more, right? So, you know, those credit default swap spreads, I think now are uh, down at maybe 25, 30 basis points. They shot all the way up to about 80 basis points. So on a percentage move, that's a lot. But uh, as a percentage in terms of pricing in default, you know, I don't think anybody really thought that was going to happen. So, you know, when that didn't happen. I don't think that surprised anybody. Um, in terms of defense, I, I think one thing, uh, the way things are, you, you kind of have a floor on spending, which I think everybody's comfortable with. And then I do believe there's a cohort of people that'll, that'll you know, have the view, and I probably fall in this camp, that ultimately, you know, if more money is needed for defense, it finds a way. <laughs> so, so we'll see. Right. But I'm probably in the minority on that. I think probably most investors are just kind of comfortable with, you know, what's there and what's going on. And, you know, if it does find a way, if we don't have a, uh, a supplemental or whatever, um, that would probably be, quote unquote, an upside risk to what's currently priced into the market. Um, it would, what you uh, said sounded a lot like the bomber always gets through, right, uh, for, for this uh, aeronautic, uh, aeronautically inclined uh, group. Um, Sash, give us a sense on, on how shares uh, performed, uh, how the group performed against sort of broader economic sentiment in Europe. Yeah, okay. I mean, actually, first of all, I'm, I'm withdrawn on this, on, on defense spending. I think defense spending is the, the ultimate uh, non-discretionary item. Companies or countries spend on defense when they have to, not because they like to. Uh, nobody wants to spend on defence ever. Certainly, politicians don't. But it's a ne- it's a necessary uh, item, and that's why defence spending tends to go up when uh, to re- to astonishing levels when it's necessary, and then comes all the way down again. Just because this is an aer- uh, an aeronautically inclined uh, podcast, I've, I'm sitting in Geneva Airport. I've just seen a remarkable thing. I've seen two Airbus A220s uh, roll back and uh, go to take off. One from um, uh, Air France and one from Swiss Air. Now, the A220 has had huge unreliability problems, specifically the engines, the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofans are performing badly. And I think Pratt's support of the A220 specifically has been very, very poor. Uh, so it's very a real surprise to me to see two A220s roll back within a few minutes of each other. There you go. That, that just shows that we, you know, we do record this, this program or this podcast live. Performance last week in Europe, aerospace and defence, really very, very little. 
Uh, the pre-Paris run, we're not seeing it. Um, the civil stocks were up about 0.6 of a percent. Defence stocks were up about 0.3 of a percent. So we're not seeing a huge reaction one way or another to the uh, Ukrainian uh, counterattack either. Um, the only stocks that stood out actually were mid-cap European defence companies. Hemring had a really good set of results. Um, their order book was up massively in the second half. The shares closed the week up 7.5%. Hensolt, for no real reason I can see, it closed the week down 7%. Um, and uh, that didn't seem to be particularly related to anything to Leonardo. They're one of their largest sort of core shareholders. But those were the two standout performances. Otherwise, everything else within about a, per a percent, a percent and a half, which in the context of current markets, that's noise. It's certainly not the clear pre-Paris performance we'd expect to see, which would be civil stocks trading up and defence stocks probably trading sideways. Uh, indeed, and thanks very much, uh, Sash, uh, for joining us uh, from uh, the airport. And a quick programming note for our audience. Next week is going to be our pre-Paris uh, Air Show coverage, where Eric Fanning is going to join us on Monday, talk a little bit about Paris Air Show themes. Ted Colbert, uh, Boeing's Defense, Space, and Security Chief Executive, is going to join us uh, on Tuesday's show. And uh, Mark Miklos, uh, the new uh, uh, Spirit Air Systems Defense boss, is going to be joining us on the Air Power podcast, uh, along with uh, Dr. Wes Naylor of Helicon Chemical will be joining us on the Air Power program. R Richard, uh, you've been very uh, patient. Uh, IATA uh, released its new uh, traffic numbers and uh, Willie, Walsh, uh, Willie Walsh, the boss, uh, has uh, candidly discussed sustainability. Um, walk us through what some of these messages were, where we're seeing sort of traffic patterns going, uh, right? I mean, CNBC had a, um, you know, covered something we've discussed before uh, that, you know, big, big airplanes were on their way out. Now, bigger planes are on their way back in uh, a little bit. Kind of walk, walk us through some of the travel uh, figures, uh, what they mean, and um, Willie's comments about how sustainable some of these grandiose sustainability plans are and would like to get everybody's bite on that apple. Yeah, there's lots to talk about with the uh, IATA. You know, first and foremost, good news. Uh, they've raised their forecast for end of this year from 86% of the 2019 travel peak to 88%. And that's good. So we're ahead of schedule. And the general feeling is that sometime uh, back half of next year, we're at 100%. Uh, so, you know, it, that's all good news. Uh, bad news is they, you know, well, there's two bits of bad news. One, there might be a revision to the already revised downward traffic forecast numbers for the next 20 years, you know, Boeing and Airbus shocked everybody and, uh, and, and our people verified it too, that uh, rather than, you know, 4.8, 4.9, 5 5.0, we were really looking at more like a 3.6, 3.5 sort of outlook and for a variety of factors, maturing economies, sustainability concerns, you know, just random shocks of the system, maybe even better telecoms if you're a big believer in that sort of impact. Uh, and we're kind of waiting for the next downward revision. Our people are looking at this and, and the general feeling is that, you know, things could drop to the low threes even. Um, the other bad news is that, you know, we've looked at this and uh, even with the full recovery, you know, you're still going to have um, by the middle of the decade, a 20, a 17% a, a impairment relative to where we would have been. So even though, you know, good news, we haven't built as many jets as we would have bad news is there's not as much traffic as there would have been if this whole pandemic atrocity hadn't happened. So there's this feeling that all of the orders that people are placing are basically just a little bit speculative and indeed predatory. Basically, there's, you know, the pool of traffic is 17% down, actually higher for international routes. 
uh, relative to where it would have been, but everyone wants that traffic. They just want to route it through formerly Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and uh, Doha, and now also uh, Istanbul, and uh, perhaps even Saudi Arabia. Uh, and of course, the Indians don't want to route traffic through anywhere. They wanted to go straight to India. But it's all the same traffic, right? Uh, right. And that's a major concern, just the sort of double counting we're going to see with the huge numbers in Paris. Um, sustainability was really interesting. Uh, I mean, except that it shouldn't surprise anybody. You know, all this wonderful talk about electrification and hydrogen and all this other stuff might impact long run, very long run hydrogen at the margins, electrification and hybridization, real margins, like 1% of traffic or less. For everybody else, it's SAF, 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 and more SAF. So Willie Walsh was being quite factual about SAF. It's all we got. And the only problem, of course, is how to scale it up and uh, which SAF, whether you want power to liquid or whether you want feedstock SAF, and many other considerations. But uh, it's what we've got if we're going to even make it part of the way to net zero by 2050, which is an increasingly dubious goal. Just uh, for the handful of people in the audience who don't know what SAF is, uh, it is sustainable aviation fuel, even though in my mind, I always think about sustainable aviation, uh, synthetic aviation fuel. Um, Ron, let me bring you into this because one of the IATA uh, skepticisms and Ron, uh, excuse me, and, and Richard just talked about it is, you know, this sort of surge of orders and whether or not they really make any sense and whether, you know, I mean, you, you maintain uh, in one of your reports that there is a lot of upside risk uh, for Airbus. Uh, Sash has talked about that in the past uh, as well. Sort of, you know, what, what were some of your uh, key key takeaways from what Ayana had to say? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think Richard covered it pretty well. I mean, the only thing I would add is when you look at these orders, we have one airline coming in for 500 and another one coming in for 500 and they're all trying to, you know, out-muscle each other with, you know, who can order the most airplanes. Um, a couple thoughts on that, right? As an airline going in and buying 500 airplanes, this is probably the dumbest way to buy airplanes. If you want 500 airplanes, buy them in 100 airplane lots and don't lock yourself into, um, you know, the, you know the, the, the the contract terms and whatever else you have on, A, that big lot of airplanes. Um, B, when you look at some of these emerging markets, let's pick in, pick on India for a moment. Um, they're, you know, India's notorious for just being really slow about getting infrastructure put in. Um, so if you're if you're really going to have this robust air transport system in the period of time that these airplane orders suggest, you better get building airports. Um, so that infrastructure uh, uh, is, is 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 a big question. And then the point that Richard brought up, I mean, multiple times, I think, is clear. Uh, everybody's fighting for the same traffic. Sort of right. So um, there's only so many airplanes that you know that you, you need on these markets. So um, I think it, it's it's reasonable to look at um, some of this as highly speculative. And then what does that mean for suppliers? And I think one of the, the feedbacks is you have suppliers who are saying who who know that um, and are reticent to ramp to levels to support what might not play out. Uh, so I think you're going to see, and this will probably be a, a theme we can talk about later about Paris, is how are suppliers thinking about this ramp and what's real and what's not. And at a time when getting capital to invest is more difficult, more expensive, um, how that's all going to play out. 
And uh, just uh, briefly before I go to Sash, a word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage and GE Aerospace uh, sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Sash, uh, your, your sense uh, on all uh, of this and you know, the notion about whether or not buying 500 airplanes at a time makes sense or not, and the sustainability issue, uh, since in our pre-talk, you're the one who first brought that up. Yeah, look, I, yeah, but I agree with you. I think what we're talking about is synthetic aviation fuels, but there's a huge amount of greenwashing here. They've been renamed sustainable aviation fuels because it sounds more socially acceptable. We'll see. I, you know, uh, the fact is, when you burn these things, they still, they still emit. That um, uh, you are burning something in a conventional turbofan that emits CO2 and other uh, emissions, including you know, huge amounts of, of uh, water vapor. And uh, it, no matter how you've created these fuels, the output is still uh, damaging to the climate. Um, I, just to put a couple of figures on how much IATA has bet on SAF, whether it's sustainable or synthetic aviation fuels, um, Willie Walsh is saying that... Um, SAF will generate, produce 62% of all the savings required to get to uh, net zero in, in 2050. So nearly two thirds of all of the, uh, the gains that the, the aviation industry has got to achieve are coming from fuels that currently do not exist at prices which are totally unacceptable. Um, the prices will come down, the volumes will go up, but the question is, how likely is it between now and 2050 that they get to the, uh, the same level as current aviation fuels? I think very unlikely. But that's, that's the gamble that uh, the aviation industry is making because they can't see another way to get to net zero. And I do worry there's going to be a very, un, you know, very worrying uh, dose of reality that will uh, you know, come to both the industry and also politicians about the impact that aviation has uh, and will continue to have post-2050. Post that, that's, that's my personal view. Um, yeah, or fi 500 aircraft orders, it's just never a good sign because it doesn't show that the industry is strong or there's a fantastic new market opening up. It shows that there are irresponsible players uh, out there who are um, placing orders largely uh, due to ego, but also due to a sort of fear of missing out. That's not a good basis on which to order aircraft that cost uh, north of $50 million each. Um, and India in particular is a, is a very, very difficult market to get right. Uh, and I don't understand why the current incumbents, Indigo and to some extent Air India, are going to do it better than, you know, for example, Go First that has just gone bust or Air India, which went bust a couple of years back and has now been resuscitated again. It's, it's a very, you know, this is not a high quality customer base at present. And it's all very well to say this is going to be the largest um, uh, economy in the world. And it's the, clearly the most populous uh, economy in the world now. Um, but does that actually feed through into sustaining, sustainable, and I mean that properly, aviation growth? I, I think it's going to be as cyclical as it is in any other economy. And uh, what do you make of the latest uh, Airbus uh, production uh, figures, uh, Sash, right? Uh, Ron's colleague, uh, Ben uh, Heelan, uh, put that uh, research uh, out uh, as well on seeing upside risk uh, you've talked about this as well. What did, what did the numbers tell us? Look, Airbus had a pretty slow start. They had a very slow start to this year, and May was a bit better. No orders, interestingly. I had to assume they're all being held back for the Paris Air Show now, but deliveries were better. Um, 63 aircraft, 
Um, remember in January, Airbus only delivered 20 aircraft, and in February 46, um, at around 65 aircraft a year, that's, oh, sorry, a month, that's what Airbus needs to deliver their full year uh, guidance at the moment. What was good, um, I think, was if you look at the mix in narrow bodies, Airbus is delivering a ton of A321s now. Um, 32 of the 51 A320 family aircraft, 63% of the total, were A321s. That's really good for mix, good for margins. What's bad, the A220, which I referred to earlier on, A320 is supposed to be being produced at six per month, and they delivered three again. Uh, and that, that's what they're averaging um, uh, year to date. So it, there is something wrong with the A220 production system. I do wonder whether Pratt & Whitney is holding air engines back because they need to put them uh, to their existing customers. Um, that's certainly one thesis that, uh, that I think is going to be worth exploring at the air show. But, um, you know, A220 A is the problem area for, uh, for Airbus. And I wouldn't want to launch the A22500 when I can't even deliver the 300 properly. Um, and wide bodies had a, had a good month. You know, wide bodies, um, four A330s and five a, A350s starting to get to where they need to be. And that, that's very encouraging. So, you know, given that the market, I think, is concerns that Airbus is more likely to, to deliver 690, 700 aircraft than 720 aircraft this year. You know, months like this make you think there's a bit of upside risk rather than just downside risk. And that's, that's quite a change from the first four months of the year. Richard, anything uh, you want to add to that before we move on? Because I want to go to the war uh, really quickly before uh, shifting over and talking a little bit about Paris themes. Uh, no, you know, I think uh, I think Sash covered it all very well. I'd, I'd point out, uh, of course, that you know, so far, aside from engine and other supply chain delays, it's been relatively smooth. 63 is a really solid number. I would emphasize, you know, sort of a glass half full here, especially since Boeing right now is saying still 70 to 80 per year on the 787, despite some mystery new shims problems. So you just don't get problems like that at Airbus. So I think, you know, again, sort of a glass half full over on that side of the uh, the pond. And uh, Ron, uh, talk to us a little bit about the shims uh, issue before we go to your uh, defense. Uh, we shift over to the defense part of, your, uh, of the conversation and uh, kind of get the big takeaways from your defense primer, uh, which was on European defense as well as services. But talk to us a little bit about that shims issue. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. This is similar to an issue that Boeing, I think, self-reported on 7.8s, I think it was in 2020, maybe 2021, um, with the horizontal tail. Uh, and um, there's a, a shim. Um, it has to do with the uh, assembly and some tolerances. Um, according to Boeing, it's something they can address relatively easily. It wasn't uh, particularly clear to see, um, but they have to inspect um, you know, the aircraft coming off the line, the aircraft they have in inventory, and ultimately the in-service fleet um, for this. This will be uh, another airworthiness directive. Um, they've slowed down deliveries of 7.8s uh, for a period of time. Um, uh, according to Boeing, um, it's not that big a deal. I mean, ultimately we'll see. I mean, you can, as you all know, nothing on airplanes is not a big deal, um, but this might be a, a smaller issue to address at least the way they framed it and some of the other things that have gone on like most certainly the you know the, the vertical tail situation on the 737 max that's that's probably a little bit more obtrusive to deal with and get at um, than this um, so um, you know hopefully it turns out uh, for for the industry and for Boeing to ultimately be not that big a deal 
a little bit of the kind of key takeaways from your uh, defense perimeter. You took a look at European defense, and then you also had a U.S. services uh, look. What were what were the you know the, these are part of a a series uh, that uh, you guys do that that talks uh, you know that tries to educate investors on on various uh, market segments. Kind of walk us through the key takeaways. Yeah. So on on European defense, I mean, we really kind of just went through. Um, you know, a lot of our work, uh, as you well know, focuses on you know, U.S. defense. Uh, and, you know, my, my colleague, Ben Heal in, in London, um, focuses on, you know, call it global defense, ex-U.S. Uh, and this is something we put together with Ben, just kind of walking through, you know, who the players are, what's going on with the budgets and so on and so forth. And in the current environment where NATO spend, at least theoretically, is going up, um, it's just kind of important to just sort of set the, the, the framework and the landscape of what's going on. And, um, that's the purpose of that document. And then um, my colleague, uh, Mariana Perez-Mora, does a lot of work on the services companies. And so we cover a whole swath of services companies. And the services companies, to many investors, um, tend to be a little bit sort of black boxes. They, you know, they don't really know what they do and so on and so forth. Um, so we pull together a document, uh, a couple documents, actually, that go through you know, understanding who the players are, what they do, how they do what they do, um, and then kind of trying to pull back uh, what are the different, you know, the different end markets that that they serve, uh, and then also um, you know, we put out actually two of them, uh, and then the second document we go through, you know, how their contract types are, what they're like, how they work, you know, how they're like the big primes in some cases, how they're not like the big primes in other cases, and so on and so forth. So uh, the, the goal with these was really just to educate folks on. Um, the services sector, because uh, it tends to be, I think, less understood than what the big primes do. And a quick word for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Um, since we're talking about European defense, this is a great opportunity uh, to bring uh, Sash in. Ukraine's counteroffensive uh, is uh, underway. A lot of debate and discussion about whether or not it's going well. You listen to Russians. The Ukrainians are taking massive casualties. You talk to uh, folks here. They say the Ukrainians have suffered some losses. Uh, and then other people say the Ukrainians are, are, are doing uh, well. Um, from you know the United States giving more aid uh, to Ukraine and increasingly comfortable with the Ukrainians even attacking into Russia as necessary in order to be able to uh, execute. Sash, where where are we and where are we headed? Whether it's in terms of sentiment, whether it's in terms of stakes, and whether it's in terms of uh, the reality. I mean, since we last spoke, uh, the Russians blew uh, the, uh, the Nova Kakovka uh, Dam flooding out an enormous amount of territory and potentially foreclosing certain avenues that the Ukrainians may have wanted to use there on the Dnipro River. Uh, I don't believe it was an accident that that uh, dam <laughs> blew up uh, and, and made so many areas uh, uninhabitable or untraversable. What, what's your sense on sort of where we are and where we're going? Uh, and maybe if you want to use this as an opportunity, Sash, to spin into some defense themes we'll see in Paris, uh, certainly would like to get a sense of that from, from each of you. Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, where are we with the, with the war? Um, the counteroffensive is, is well underway, but it's important to, uh, you know, for our listeners who, who might not be defence-oriented uh, to understand how long it takes 
to, um, I mean, we, we've had the launching of the, of the counteroffensive or the preparing phase has taken months. But now what they're trying to do is to fix the uh, Russians. They're trying to pin them down in a number of areas. They're trying to get them to deploy what are probably a pretty limited uh, number of reserves to prevent Ukrainian breakthroughs. Um, some of which they will then try to kill, probably almost certainly with artillery, and others of which the moving those reserves away from other areas actually weakens those for attack. So it's, at the moment, it looks as if there are three main uh, areas of attack, one in the northeast, one in the east, one broadly due south. But each of those has got uh, multiple uh, axes at the moment. Um, they're probing. They're trying to find where the Russian defences are are weakest, but they're also trying, to, as I said, to to drag Russian reserves to uh, unfavourable positions where where they can kill them. This could go on several days yet, and if you you know the 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 dream scenario for the Ukrainians is that they uh, find they achieve um, a breakthrough in at least one and probably more than one uh, place, and that could put the Russian uh, lines very much. Uh, unbalanced and, and at a huge disadvantage. But remember, some of the Russian lines are multiple layers, 10, 15, 20 kilometers deep. So this is, this is at this stage, a very, very long process indeed. Um, I think we, you know, I, I hope we, we will know a great deal more at the moment. I wouldn't pay any attention to anybody who is talking about a, uh, a casualty list at the moment. I think some of it, because it seems to me that when people talk about the number of enemy they've killed, they tend to be on the losing side. It's not a good, uh, it doesn't sound good, and it doesn't tend to be accurate either. Um, what I would do, though, is to be looking at some of the open source uh, intelligence, some of which is very, very good, which geolocates um, particular pictures and so forth. And that will probably, by the beginning of next week, give us a much clearer idea of where the Ukrainians are making progress and where they're not. Now, as you write, you know, right today, the American, uh, you know, the U.S. is um, becoming much more relaxed about the Ukrainians attacking into Russia itself, and that, I, of itself, I think, should um, destabilize the Russians. We saw this in the, in the very, very early stages, a week, 10, 14 days ago, where uh, we had uh, raids by so-called, um, you know, Russian volunteer units, uh, drone strikes into the Kremlin, and this was all designed to, to put the Russians off balance. I think. The U.S. making it clear that uh, deep strike weapons can be used across the Russian border will we'll do the same. Is there a risk of escalation? Yeah, absolutely. Although the Russians have, have tried wolf on that several times now. I think they are less credible when they um, uh, you know, threaten escalation than, than they were a year ago. Uh, so it, it's a very, very interesting situation at the moment. But it's probably important for people to understand how incredibly difficult combined arms operations like this are, uh, are and particularly how hard they are when you don't have air superiority. Uh, and, and hence where uh, your artillery is having to do all the heavy lifting in terms of uh, providing indirect firepower. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen one source, you know, pretty good source on Twitter today saying only the US in NATO can do this at this sort of level. So if the Ukrainians pull this off, that's an astonishing achievement. Um, if, you, if they even half pull it off, um, that will still be very, very impressive indeed. I don't think this means that they are not going to need prodigious amounts of arms and equipment all the way through this year and well into next year, um, either hopefully to finish the job or to, to enable them to defend themselves against future Russian attacks. So um, this is not something that's going to end uh, quickly, even with a, a counteroffensive at the scale. In terms of some themes 
that we should expect to see in Paris, right? I mean, everybody is highlighting just about everything they do from whether their radar capabilities can spot balloons well or, right? I mean, it seems like everybody is tailoring their messages uh, on a national security side, even for a show that is going to be predominantly commercial, I should point out to folks. And we'll have a better idea about what some of these themes are over the course of the next week as we start to see the companies sort of pre-leak and pre-brief what it is that they're going to be handing out there. But what, what do you think uh, some quick themes are? And then uh, R- Richard uh, and Ron want to get kind of your, your senses on all this as well. Look, every company always says that their products are, you know, the, the best positioned to, to meet current and future demands. Uh, we hear it on every single uh, set of quarterly uh, earnings calls, and we'll hear it at Paris big, big time. I'm going to be more interested, actually, in who is seeing demand now and probably more importantly, who is ramping up their own internal production to meet demand, which has not yet gone through a budget process. Because people who, you know, companies who are that confident tend to have something that's really hot. We've already seen uh, European radar manufacturers start to use radars uh, literally on spec. Um, uh, Saab, Thales, Hensold are building radars with their own euro or uh, Swedish crown because they know they're going to be able to sell it either to European governments or to uh, or, or to Ukraine and it's better to start the work now than to wait for a, what can sometimes be a slightly sclerotic budget process that's going to be the acid test for every company in Paris I think rather than whether they can you know they say they can shoot down a balloon or not um, and so you know the radar companies are going to be really interesting the air defense companies overall the missile companies uh, how does Europe actually get back to a, a reasonable level of air defence? Because there is very little air defence in general in Europe, apart from some slightly sclerotic um, uh, Patriot batteries that were generally budgeted for and, for and started to be procured during the Cold War. That, that I think, is going to be the air theme. Um, fixing aircraft, probably not. I'll be fascinated to see what, if anything, the helicopter companies can say. Um, Richard, uh, your sense, and then Ron, uh, yours. Yeah, you know, um, obviously from the standpoint of uh, defense, it's, uh, well, more Sasha's turf because a lot of the pure play U.S. defense primes have business elsewhere. <laughs> Maybe a, several of them aren't even really showing up, and uh, most of the others just have the luxury of full backlogs and more of a problem of how do you build missiles or F-35s or whatever else. Uh, it's going to be more of a, you know, European show. There might be a bigger presence from emerging producers. Obviously, you had the arrival of the first um, Korean FA-50s in Poland uh, the other day. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, the people who have been bringing on bandwidth and now are in the right place at the right time, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be putting on a fairly aggressive show. Um, it'd be interesting to see uh, on, on the subject of ISR, you know, you've got Poland buying, um, not globalized, but I gather some sort of eerie variant, you know, you're going to have Saab and folks like that talk about, uh, you know, their ISR capabilities. So I think there will be quite a lot of ISR. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see what the latest news is on SCAF because I've, you know, maintained for some time that the world's stupidest idea is a Franco-German joint venture combat aircraft. And, you know, the last Paris we went to back in 2019, there was that marvelous rollout of a, well, mock-up, but it looked like a Franco-French mock-up. There wasn't a lot of German talk involved. It looked like a Dassault product. Um, It's going to be really interesting what people are saying about SCAF and how Dassault comports itself and whether or not there'll be any German discontent over the whole thing. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm expecting a fascinating show. 
German discontent. Um, I would say that there might also be a little bit of French discontent because the Titan vendor does have some folks. Uh, it shouldn't, right? It shouldn't. But there are, you know, if, if you're next to a country uh, with which you develop good relations, there's no way of forgetting sort of the three times in the century before that major wars were fought between the, the two countries. And I find that sort of an interesting um uh, tendency and an interesting concern that I intend to do a little bit of reporting on while I'm in uh, Paris. Uh, Ron, uh, give us uh, give us your sense. And very quickly uh, to Sash. Sash, I know you're going to the gate. Is there anything you want to add before you part? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. As Richard said, really looking forward to the gate. Indeed. Uh, all the best. We, and we're going to have a special show uh, before the Paris Air Show. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into themes and what are uh, some of the questions that we're uh, looking uh, to get answered. Uh, Ron, uh, give us give us your sense before we wrap for this week's program. Yeah, I mean, from an from a investor perspective, Honeywell will be having an investor meeting at the show. Raytheon Technologies will be having a full on investor meeting at the show. Um, GE will be hosting a meeting at the show. So I think engines will be a focus for sure. You know, what's going on with uh, the GTF family of engines, what it means, where's it going? What's it mean for the program? There's been a lot of questions in the investment community around that. So that'll be one area where there'll be a lot of focus. Two, just supply chains in general. You know, how's this, you know, how's the ramp going? What do we have to worry about? What don't we have to worry about? You know, where could we be in a year? So on, so on and so forth. So I think there'll be a lot of digging on that front. I would say more broadly, the investment community tends to be less focused on defense at this show. Uh, but like both you know, uh, Richard and, and Sasha, I think from a defense perspective, this show will be um, particularly interesting, right? Because of everything that's going on um, uh, in the Ukraine and otherwise. Uh, and then with you know all the different uh, international fighter programs going on. Uh, at, if, if we can learn anything on... Um, NGAD, uh, I think that would be useful. Um, our friends uh, at Embraer, uh, maybe they'll offer some more on what they're doing. Uh, you know, there's some speculation that maybe they're doing an airplane, maybe they're not. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Right. Uh, so I think I think that that'll be interesting as well. But you know, all in, looking forward to it. And you know, it's been you know four years in the making, right? So should prove to be a good show. Uh, Richard, is there anything you want to add before we uh, break for the week? Nope. Like Ron said, it's going to be a really interesting show. It has been four years, and I think there's a lot of uh, you know fascination with looking at the continent. Farnborough was uh, was great fun last year, but post Brexit, you know, there's it just feels it felt a, a little bit smaller than it would have been otherwise. Here, we're really going to take the the mood of a, a continent that's been trying to ramp up defense budgets and coping with a very serious security threat, while simultaneously uh, balancing um, concerns about Asia Pacific. So it's going to be a great show. Uh, very eager to be talking to you guys going into it next Sunday when all of us will be in Paris uh, and then certainly coming out of that uh, to get uh, everybody's uh, takeaways. Thanks so very much. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, have a great week. Uh, bon voyage to all of you guys, because by the time we uh, talk to each other next, we'll all be uh, in Paris. And uh, thanks very much, as always, for joining us. Yeah, always, Vago. Great to be here and uh, see you in Paris. Yeah, going to be a great one. Thanks, Vago. Uh, and thanks uh, very much to all of you for joining us and special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. On tomorrow's program, Sam Bendet is going to give us an update on the war as Kiev's offensive starts. 
Eric Fanning of the Aerospace Industries Association is going to be joining us with a look ahead to the Paris Air Show. And our very own Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners is going to help us take a look at the week ahead. Thanks very much. Hope you all had a great weekend and have a great evening and look forward to having you back on the program again tomorrow. Thanks very much and have a great day.